Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Anna. We'll get to today's episode in just a minute, but I want to quickly remind you first that we want to hear from you right now about child care. Do you take care of kids for your job? What are the conversations you're having right now that you've never had before with your employer or with parents? And what are the things you wish you could say but feel like you can't? And if you have kids, how is the childcare situation in the pandemic affecting everything else in your life? We want to especially hear from people who aren't women who have kids. We've only heard from women so far. Record a voice memo or send us an email at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Now, this episode is special. This summer, we're doing a series of live Zoom conversations with the authors of new books that we love. Today, Aminatou So and Anne Friedman, authors of the new New York Times bestselling book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. They've written a book that is both a memoir of their long friendship and a manifesto about the importance of putting in the work to take care of our friendships in adulthood. Aminatu and Anne are also the hosts of the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, which they started back in 2014 as long-distance friends. They've been very close for more than a decade, but have lived apart more than they've lived near each other. When they first met back in 2009, Anne and Aminatu were both living in D.C. in their 20s and starting to shape their adult lives. A lot has changed since then. And that's introduced real strain and conflict in their friendship. We talked about all of this on Zoom on the day their book came out. Anne was at home in L.A. Aminatu was in New York. Congratulations on your new book and welcome. Thank you. Hi. Hi, I'm so glad you're both here. Thank you for having us. Um, I'm excited that we get to have this day together, even in this strange way. Um, I think you have taught a lot of us through the modeling of your friendship that even when you're not in the same place, you can still really show up for each other. Um, so it's it's kind of odd that now you're experiencing this big moment in your friendship not together. Right. Um, the the tagline for our podcast is "See you on the internet." Who knew that would be such a <laughs> prescient line? <laughs> That would come back to bite us in the ass later on. Um, you know, yeah, our, our friendship has been long distance for um, for for longer than we had ever lived in the same city. And, and for as good as we are about keeping in touch, so much of our rituals and the, the muscle memory of keeping in touch is making these memories um, together in the same place. We're, we're huge on traveling together. We try to celebrate together when we can or squeeze each other in on a trip when we're n- near each other. And so, you know, we are also having to learn how to stretch ourselves in this way of, okay, like no one can see each other. How are we going to be present and how are we going to celebrate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about sort of what you've learned over the course of that friendship and figuring out how to be in each other's lives, despite those those structures that make it a little bit more challenging. But I want to go back to when you first met um, and you write about the moment when you first noticed each other uh, in the same room uh, at, a, at a Gossip <laughs> Girl viewing party in 2009 in Washington, D.C. And I wonder if each of you could sort of say, like, what did you notice about the other that you were like, oh, I want to spend more time with this person. I want to be friends with this person. How much time do you have? Okay, so <laughs> um, let's start with the very obvious. We, as as you mentioned, were watching Gossip Girl, a teen soap opera, and Aminatu was wearing a Chuck plus Blair t-shirt that was clearly homemade. And I say that in the most <laughs> loving and like craft-appreciating kind of way. Not like, ugh, clearly homemade, but like clearly it was homemade. Um <laughs> And I loved that. I love um, a theme party. And I love that she showed up dedicated to what that night was all about. Um, I loved her jokes. She really had, like, the best asides, you know? Like, when you're watching TV with a group, like, that is a real test of, um, you know, where someone's brain goes when presented with all of these opportunities to make a joke. Um, And there's also a part of it that was just gut level that I don't know that I could fully articulate to you, but I, um, I just very immediately wanted to know what she thought about everything. And what did you notice about Anne? Oh my God. How much time do you really have? (laughs) Um, you know, I, we were, 
we were set up by a friend, actually. The reason that we were both at this TV viewing party is because our friend um, Dio, who um, is an amazing curator of humans, <laughs> had decided that we had to meet. She had decided that we had to meet, and she engineered this um, this evening for us. So I, you know, I went in ready. I was uh, I was I was ready to play the game. And, uh, you know, I remember seeing Anne the first time and, and not to objectify you, you know, I love your brain a lot, but I just remember thinking like, this lady is a babe. I love the way that I love the way she is wearing these jeans. The outfit was great. I loved the bright lipstick you were wearing. I loved the, the asides that you had as well. And, um, very quickly knew that this was someone whose every thought I wanted to know. You know, it's also true that I had been, um, I had read Anne previously. And so I knew what I was getting into. And I, you know, I, from a very, very top level, thought that I knew who you were. But getting this in-person experience was so great for me. And Anne, were you aware of Aminatu's blog when you met her that she was running at the time? Good question. I'm not sure I knew about it before we met. You're referring to Orzagasm, uh, her yes. fan blog about uh, Office, of, Office of Management and Budget Director Peter Orzog. Um, During the administration, yes. Indeed. I- yes, putting the OMG back in OMB, absolutely. Okay, so who among us would not have been in love with this woman? I just have to say. Um, but I was. N- I don't think I was aware of the blog, but I in, in that in that early social media kind of way where um, you have maybe seen people who are friends with your friends, even if you don't know them directly, you're aware of them and you you probably know their names and you've seen a select few photos. I had seen her in pictures with other people that I knew and was like, oh, she's wearing things that are cute. Like, I like her style. I, I want to meet her. You know, I mean, I was definitely aware that she was a person who existed um, that I wanted to know. And and also Dio had talked her up to me um, after uh, Aminatu and Dio had dinner together. You know, the next day I think Dio was on GChat being like, "Listen, you have to meet this person. She's great." Well, that's what's interesting to me about your like meeting each other is that it, you didn't seem either of you to have a sort of reticence to be like, "Uh, like, we're, is it okay? Like, can I just express my enthusiasm for this person, or is it going to be overwhelming or seem like I need more friends and I might be rejected?" Like, you both were all in very quickly. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, one Dio is really cool. Also, <laughs> I don't think that anyone. I don't think that anyone is too cool to make a new friend, you know? And so I, I I completely understand that hesitation, but it is not a hesitation that I have. Um, and, you know, and also I think that we were really in a period in our lives, we were in our 20s in D.C., a very transient kind of city where we were both aware that so many other big anchors in our lives were, you know, they were one foot out the door already of, of living there. And... Um, and part of what was exciting about meeting each other is that there was room in our lives. There was some real room to make a significant kind of friendship. I, um, you know, that is one thing I mourn the most about that period of my life. It just seems like there was so much time, um, unstructured time that you could spend trying to make friends. That is certainly not true today. So what I love about your book, we're going to get back to your personal story and your personal love story as friends. Um, But I, I really think it's important that you're naming something that doesn't isn't named enough, which is like what this relationship is, like what it is that you are to each other and why it is worthy of attention, time, and care, um, especially as you move out of a time in your life when you have, you know, more unstructured time, like you have to make the choices to invest in each other right now. Um, so what, when you came up with the term big friendship, what were you trying to capture and, and what felt unnamed before you named it? Uh, thank you for this question, Anna. You are really getting to the meat of it. Someone should give you an amazing interview. <laughs> <laughs> I I just on a on a level of craft, I just really appreciate you right now. Appreciate um, that. <laughs> you know, I think that what we were really trying to capture is the fact that the friend ter- the the term friend is so nebulous. Um, someone that you barely know um, on your Facebook feed is your friend. Someone that you met in childhood that you have not spoken to in 20 years is your friend. And um, someone that shares a bond like Anne and I share is also a friend. And we really 
understand the importance of words and the importance of, um, you know, naming very specific things in friendship because part of the challenge of friendship is that it can be such an undefined relationship where you have all of these feelings, you know what you mean to each other, but if you are not saying it to each other, then, um, you know, that also becomes a source of pain sometimes. And we really wanted to focus on, um, you know, really specifically on keeping each other close. And for us, that meant um, finding a word to to say that the kind of friendship that we have is mature. It is rooted in the future. It is not blown away by changes of circumstance. And it really is a choice that both people are opting into over and over again. Oh. And existing oh. terms like bestie or best friend, which we have certainly used um, to describe our friendship at various points, also didn't quite fit. Um, they either felt a little infantilizing, like, like you know, something about bestie is inherently um, kind of cutesy, uh, and it, it didn't capture the work that we've put into this friendship. Um, and something like best friend didn't fit either because, um, you know, we we don't quite place it on a hierarchy like that. You know, we, we both have other friends who we're really close to for the long term, and this is not um, the one, the only close friendship like this in our lives. And so, yeah, it was even, even like the terms to distinguish a close friendship from other kinds of friendships didn't work for us. I, I love what you said about opting in over and over again, because I, I, I've thought about that. You, you made me think a lot about the friendships in my life when I was reading the book. And, you know, one point that could have been a moment where you became less present in each other's lives was when you just didn't live in the same place anymore. And I wonder, looking back at that, if that felt like, you know, and did you feel like you were sort of like leaving behind this community when you were moving to a new city? Like, did you have a conversation between the two of you defining your relationship that you were going to stay together uh, despite the move? Like, what was it like when you first were apart? One of the nice things about moving when our friendship was still kind of new is that we were just in this intense period of um, constant contact with each other and constant dialogue. And I I do think it would have been harder, actually, if I had moved, you know, five years into our friendship or maybe when we had settled into we only see each other a couple times a week um, as opposed to our constant contact. And so it was it was, I think, just implied that we were going to stay close to each other. Um, I'm sure we said it. I'm sure we said, you know, I, I love you and when are we talking tomorrow as opposed to, like, mm. let's just stay in touch in a nebulous way. Um, but, uh, but it didn't, that actual period of transition, it felt hard in the sense that I missed um, the unstructured hours that we had had together. But it did not feel, to me at least, that the friendship was in question. Or it did not feel like, um, oh, are we going to make it through this? Or will we still be close? Is that how it felt like for you, Aminatu? Did you feel abandoned at all? You know, I remember... Um, my feelings about this was that it was an ongoing process of understanding that... Um, Anne would have to leave eventually. Huh. Like, I think I made my peace with that. Um, because I, you know, I was in it with her, like watching how work was going or how these other areas of her life were going. And so um, I think that I, I saw into the future very quickly that it was possible that this person would leave. And as those events happened, um, I... You know, it was one, it's it's not something that you can really make about yourself. <laughs> you know, I'm like my my friend is not happy at her job. She needs a shot at stability and life and moving is that. But also I think that because um it felt like we, you know, we were plotting together. We were really plotting out our lives. And so when the the catalyst for Anne moving happened, I I really felt that I was invested and I was in it with her and I understood why she was doing it. But I do remember having to make a choice of, okay, this is not about you. Deep breath. You can cry about it into your pillow. We're, we are never going to make Anne feel that this is not a choice she can make for herself. <laughs> but I remember it was really painful yeah. for me because I, you know, like had to be a cheerleader and also was terrified about what that meant for me. But it felt really natural and it felt really easy. And truly, I will never, like, one of the defining moments of my life is the morning that Anne drove away from D.C. Like, I remember just how 
devastated I was that day, you know, and, and I've had very few of those days in my life. And it's, and I think that it was, um, like understanding that that was a kind of grief mm -hmm. was actually very powerful for me because I understood that it meant that Anne meant a lot to me. And so I had to grieve that. And I also had to be supportive of the fact that, you know, she, uh, she has to go uh, build a life. Oh my for God. Herself. If you love yeah. someone, set them free. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hanging up on the zoom. Goodbye. <laughs> the Hallmark version of and this. And you call yourself a writer. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Um, I should say we are taking questions live. If you're watching this live, you can ask a question via Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. We are watching that and we will get to those questions later on. Um, so, but I want to get to this moment of, of um, which sounds like real rupture uh, about five years into your friendship. And you describe it at the very beginning of the book um, in such a, like, I just felt it. You you talk about um, going to a spa weekend where you recognized that you needed to spend some quality time together. Um, and then you notice while you're getting ready for some of your treatments, like the easy way that you had been together without clothes on earlier in your friendship, that that was a little just different, that there was this like familiarity and ease that was not there that had been there. Um, and you didn't really have words for what was happening. Um can you talk through, like, how how did you begin that conversation of just, like, you know, admitting that the closeness that you had felt was feeling different? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, not to, but I, I think that it almost started over email or, like, maybe over text where separately – one of us would have an experience that really drove home how far we felt from the other and then send an email that was like, listen, I'm thinking of you. Want you to always be in my life. I know things are hard right now. Something kind of vague and high level, but like well-meaning. I think we had traded a few of those um, with long gaps between them and not, I don't remember anyway, a conversation that was, digging into the specifics of what we each meant by those notes when we sent them. Um, and I think that was, you know, now in hindsight, clearly part of the problem, right? That we were, we were able to say something is wrong here. And um, we were saying, I still care about you. I, in other words, I want to fix it, but trying to actually dig in and name what it was, was really difficult. And speaking for myself, I know it was really difficult for me in real time to even identify it on my own. Like it was really hard to, it, that period of time feels like, it feels very confusing. Like I'm kind of got a blindfold on and feeling my way through the dark, you know, like I don't really know. I know that something's wrong here, but I can't quite name an incident or I can't quite say, um, these are, these are the things we need to talk about in, in specifics. And so, you know, that trip going away together, I think we both hoped would be a time when we would find more words for what this thing was that was happening between us. And, um, the truth was by that point, we were just in this pattern of not feeling safe with each other, talking about some very big things in our lives. And, it turns out that as much as you want that, sometimes you can't just say, all right, I am going to talk to you really vulnerably right now. Um, so so it didn't work. And we both felt really bad at the end of the weekend that um, we didn't, you know, have this blissful reconnection that I think we had both hoped for. Yeah. Do you, do you want to say more about that weekend, Aminatu? What did, how did you understand what was going on? Oh my gosh, it felt like a really, you know, I remember feeling um, a little hopeful um, doing the planning of going into that vacation, into that trip, because like, and I remember that we had been trading these emails and, and I knew exactly what I meant by my emails, right? I, I knew that it meant a, hi, I'm still here. I'm a feelings idiot and I don't know how to name the thing, but I am still here and I'm getting in like touch with you. Like raising your hand, hi. And, and I... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Hi. And I remember, Anne, you sent this email from, uh, you had been on a writing retreat maybe to Guatemala. Guatemala, yes. Like somewhere, somewhere, somewhere fun that we can't go to right now. Um, and it was the, and you had sent this like very explicit email about the tattoo that we shared and how you had had to explain it to other people. 
And I think that it was the first time that I understood that, oh, the icky feeling that I have is the same icky feeling that you have. <laughs> I, because when, you know, you, I at least was very much in dialogue with myself about how uh, dysfunctional and bad their relationship was. I was not in dialogue with Anne about it, but um, in the prison of my mind, it was a very <laughs> active conversation. <laughs> it was a very, very active conversation. And I think that part of the, Part of the disconnect and part of what was really hard for me was this feeling of, I'm like, oh, I am suffering and I am lonely in this relationship and Anne is fine. Mm -hmm. Like, she's just fine. She is, she's not telling me what's going on with her and I am making a meaning out of her not saying anything to me and I am projecting every feeling that I have onto her and I am suffering and she is she is just like moving on with her life. And that email was the first indicator to me that, oh, but you know, like maybe she, maybe she also is feeling disconnected. And so I remember feeling hopeful that we started planning those things. It's, um, we, we've said this a million times, but we have to say it again. Um, we are very bad at feelings. We are great at ideas and we are bad at feelings. So of course I got excited about the logistics of the worst kind of couples retreat you can go on because, because I am not understanding as I am planning this one how dangerous and awful it can be but it just, it felt it felt like hope it felt like oh the um I yeah the way that I experience hope in bad uh situations is that I feel that if you get a little bit of momentum it's better than being stuck where you were and so the prospect of the trip felt like momentum and um and you know and then I remember getting there and we had to share a room and that was awkward you know and and we there was just like not an ease around each other and I think that that is the absence of that is something that you can't quite describe but you really feel it in your bones you know of, oh hi I'm I'm sharing this luxurious suite with someone and they might as well be a stranger it's so strange and also I know that she is trying her best we are talking we are picking out a movie together we are you know like we're on the same page about what we want for lunch <laughs> We are going to have these spa treatments. And and that was really painful. I think that um, I had not quite understood that you could be with someone and be really lonely at the same time. That was the first time that that really came into, into focus for me. And... Um, you know, an, an experience that a lot of my married friends, frankly, have described and that I had not never quite understood. And I think that I really, I, I like understand that now at a, at a gut level. And, you know, and, and I saw us just like tiptoe around each other and we were very ginger about the, the topics we try to, to discuss and, you know, like floating around in the pool. The, the silences are just really heavy. And, um, and I, I just have so much compassion for the two people on that trip because we were trying in our own way to, you know, it's like, how do you get the magic back? And, you know, every stereotype of that is a is a couple's retreat. But guess what? Like, you need uh, rules and you need boundaries and you need activities. You, like, you cannot just go away and think that, um, you know, magic is going to happen. And so that was the first real glimpse in that, um, you know, the fact that we needed a real process. And you, you talked about the difficulty that in the book you both talked about that real-time feelings expression is can be challenging for each of you. Um, and so I guess after that retreat, after that weekend together where you were like, oh, this was supposed to be the weekend where we did this work together to like recommit to one another and to still feel a little estranged at the end, what did you do next? Well, more time passed. Um, uh -huh. I can't tell you exactly how much, but definitely like some more months slid by. And this is the period of time when being in a long distance friendship, I think really was difficult for us. Um, because we were not really emotionally connected. Um, it never felt like the right time for the kind of conversation that we, that we needed. Um, and this was true before that spa getaway as well, where we could say, you know, this is really kind of an in-person conversation. Like, this is not a phone qu quality conversation. We really need to be together. Um, but then when we got together, we'd be like, oh, we just want to have a good time together. We don't want to bring it down with a hard conversation about our friendship. And, and, um, and I do think that it can be hard to figure out how to intervene in a long-distance friendship when um, there are time zones involved and you have different schedules and... Um, 
So that was a real point of difficulty. And I don't want to fully blame the physical distance between us because I think there was still a lot of avoidance on both of our parts. Um, But really the conversation that kind of moved things along um, was related to work. And it was about the prospect of kind of doing further work together about maybe like writing a book together or doing something that was a collaboration between just the two of us, which is distinct from our podcast where we have, uh, we have a third, um, (laughs) our producer, Gina. And, um, and there was something about this conversation for where the specter of collaborating without Gina as a buffer and kind of going deeper into this work part of our relationship, which was always fully functional. You know, we've always been great colleagues, even if our friendship has stumbled at times. Um, But the prospect of placing more uh, weight on this relationship felt truly untenable. And it was in that conversation, which I believe was a phone conversation, um, that I... I my recollection is that um we were trying to figure out or maybe maybe I mean Ati, maybe you asked me like is this something you want to do I can't remember how it exactly unfolded um but I was able to say I feel really awful in this friendship <laughs> in a way that was um I think something that we had both expressed over email but because it was on the phone created a different kind of opening um and I think that either in that conversation or shortly thereafter we decided that our well-meaning attempts at spa getaways were not, in fact, repairing our relationship. Um, they were just fixing our skin. <laughs> and um, and that maybe we should look into getting help from someone who understands, like, more complex emotional dynamics and how to repair them. Hmm. Was it hard to find a therapist when you decided that you might want to look into friendship counseling, to couples counseling as friends? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If if anyone is listening to this and is a therapist, please uh, become a friendship therapist because you will be a billionaire. <laughs> I... <laughs> You know, it was it was really it was really really hard, and um, you know, and even that that conversation that you're outlining, I'm I'm having like a full physical reaction to it because I think that it was in that conversation that I understood immediately that oh, what we are we are not understanding each other at all. We're both speaking English, and we are not understanding each other at all because, you know, I felt that in that phone call, I was trying to to push you to say like, okay, here, you know, like how do I feel? And, and every, and everything that you were saying to me was, oh, maybe I want to, maybe I do want to work on this project together. And it wasn't until you, um, you said those words, like, I feel awful where, you know, in some ways, like the, the thing you were the most scared of for me, it was such a relief because that felt like a diagnosis. Great. We, nobody's, nobody's happy here. And, um, and it was the first time that I, I think we were on the same page, but also that phone call was so, um, frankly, like a little scary because I, it just dawned on me that and the enorm the enormous possibility that we were just not understanding each other for a really long time. And so, you know, looking for a therapist together was also really hard because it involves logistics and it involves decision making. And, and it is also a tacit agreement to at least stick it out uh, through the process. And, you know, and neither of us felt, you know, especially safe and grounded in our relationship. So I, I am kind of, I'm, I'm so shocked and surprised that we did it in some ways. And in other ways, you know, I'm like, yeah, these these two nerds like love logistics. <laughs> of course we did it. You know, so it's 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 hard. It's hard to tell. The, the heart wants what the heart wants. But, um, you know, I, I remember like talking through with you, like how and where we would find a therapist and the only model kind of that we had for this was, you know, other friends that we knew that had gone to couples therapy or maybe, you know, people who were therapists or people who were friends with therapists. And um, and that just started us down this path of asking a lot of questions. So in some way, I you know, in some way I would say it was a, a tiny reporting project, but it is not... Um, it's not great out there for 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 people who are trying to repair their relationship and trying to find support for it. And we knew that we, you know, we wanted a therapist that was feminist. We knew that we wanted someone who understood, um, you know, that one of us was white and one of us was black and that they were going to know what to do with that. We wanted um, a therapist also that 
understood that we were not looking for career coaching. And um, because so so many of the models that we knew for people who had done this that were not romantically involved or were not families were co-founders, where, you know, you you get a coach or you someone sends you to therapy and they're like, fix it so that the, the business can run well. And for us, that was not the problem at all. And we also wanted someone who understood that we, you know, we were not... Um, this was not a romantic relationship gone wrong. And so it involved asking a lot of questions, but there was not a perfect person to tackle this problem. And what did you, I realize this is a big question that might be hard to answer, but when you think back on what you came away from that therapy together with, like, was it that it just gave you space to feel a little bit more safe to have these difficult conversations because there was someone else listening? Or did you come away with new skills that you didn't have before about how to be friends to one another? I I think for me, it was just um, the goal, or if I I had a goal going in, other than um, feel less bad about this friendship, (laughs) um, is that I wanted to understand more about Aminatu's reality in our friendship. I think it had become very clear that um, we were not understanding each other and each other's intentions with and in the friendship. And for that reason, the mere act of deciding that we were going to do this totally wackadoo thing and go to therapy together um, was this huge vote of confidence in a way in in the sense of not that like everything was going to be fine, but that we were still invested in each other enough to want to undertake this process and invest literal dollars, you know, and, and time and effort into understanding what was going on with each other. So even that felt better than, than, before we had had the conversation, the joint, um, and yeah, probably some comfort in logistics as well, but like the joint intention of showing up to therapy, um, felt good. Um, I would say that it's maybe not surprising then that what I gained was more knowledge about exactly how we were missing each other. Um, and the patterns that had allowed that to happen. Um, and, and I think that you know, we we summarize it a little bit in in the book, but um, you know, our our therapist specialized in this mode, I guess, called um, emotionally focused therapy (EFT), which is meant to be a short term, like you know, not the kind of personal development therapy that you do for a whole lifetime. Um, yeah. Tune up therapy. I love tune up therapy. <sighs> that is the yeah. word for I like it. Like objectives. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, or, or, you know, rather than rather than just saying like, oh, this is maybe something we're going to need support on for the rest of our lives, understanding that we could, you know, get some really important lessons about how we both communicate and how we do and don't feel and express feelings and move on. Um, but, but, you know, one thing that she explained to us is that this dynamic would happen where um, I would be worried about hurting Aminatu. And so I would withdraw or say like, okay, like I'm just going to tread really lightly here. You know, that eggshells feeling that we were talking about. And Aminati would be like, she is treading really lightly with me and not being real. I'm not going to extend myself either. And then would withdraw. And I would be like, oh my God, she's withdrawing further. I did something wrong again. And we would just have this cycle of not, um, not connecting that way. And the therapist really was like, the day she explained this, it was like she cracked the case. Like, let me lay it all out for you. Uh, you know, I know this is why you're here. This is the penultimate episode. I'm gonna tell you like everything, um, and then we'll have like a like a. It really it was. It really was. It really felt like that. Um, and and I don't I don't think that um, I had anticipated. This sounds so silly. I don't think I had anticipated we were that textbook. You know what I mean? Like, because we are friends and going into this, it seems very strange that like, oh, of course, this is like an intimacy pattern that that she sees in families or in couples and could identify it in us. Um, I don't know. I guess I had been expecting something like modified because we're friends or like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I've been expecting. I guess, do you all fight... And, like, do you deal with conflict in a different way in your friendship than you notice how you deal with conflict in your, you know, relationships with your family of origin or in romantic relationships? Like, is it is it harder to fight within friendships for you all? Hmm. 
You know, I I think for me, at least, like, a couple of things are true that I am... I am very different in every other relationship than I am with my family. So that is not... um, And I'm not... um, I was not very close to my family for a very long time. So I think that that is... That is definitely something, you know, I'm like, that's a good data point. Um, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. Um, I think um, I think that what is also true for Anne and I is that, you know, in the early years of our relationship, we never fought. And I don't think that we didn't fight because um, we were avoiding fighting. There was just really nothing to fight about. And we built this really, you know, powerful... Um, this concept that um, the linguist uh, Deborah Tannen calls story of sameness, mm. where we were so hyper-focused on all of the ways that we were similar that, um, you know, it it had really not occurred to me that we had these very big differences, um, which sounds so silly. We were literally, like, we could not be too <laughs> further apart. Humans who picked each other to be friends. But... You know, but that's how it is. It's like you you meet someone in any context and you really want to believe that you are yourself and they are themselves and you share all these things in common that are completely untouched by the world. Um, you know, and I have to say that even on things that we don't agree on, you know, I, I'm sure that there's some big, you know, issue that we don't agree on. Because we've been in dialogue with each other for so long, you know, and we are, um, you know, like our our podcast is literally premised on just discussing ideas that we have in the world. I think that we have, we generally have a good way of of handling those conversations. But I cannot think of a thing right now where I'm like, ugh, like that's a disagreement I've been dying to get off uh, off my chest. Like I just, you know, I I do think that you are you are correct though to your earlier question about do you fight differently with friends? I find for myself that the more I like someone, and that's generally my friends, the more I like you, the more gentle I am. That is just true. I was like, I am my best, most loving, most supportive self in a friendship. And then, you know, like, uh, sorry to my family and my partners, because that is not, that is not necessarily true. And, you know, and, and I don't know, um, I like, I can't diagnose that, but I, I find for myself that I have a generosity with friends and, um, like things are just less annoying when someone is my friend that is not true in my other relationships. Coming up, Anne and Aminatu talk about how being different races has led to some predictable yet still painful rifts. And they answer your questions about friendship. And give us a pep talk about how to go out and make some new friends. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. On that last point about sameness that you made, Aminatu, I, I want to make sure we talk about race and friendship because I think the chapter that you have in your book about that is just so beautifully done and with such honesty. And I want to ask you both to reflect on the moment that you talk about in the book or one of the moments that you talk about in the book in friendship, which is when, Anne, you're having a birthday party. You're, it's when you're living in Los Angeles. You're in a new environment than when you were hanging out on a more daily basis with Aminatu and she comes to this birthday party and you describe noticing pretty quickly Aminatu when you show up that you are the only person who's not white at the party. Um, What happened next? Well, that night, um, Aminatu, you left early, correct? Very early. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think my read on it in real time <laughs> was uh she's traveling and she's tired and she's gone home early. You know? I mean, I, I I really think that in real time that is um that was my take on the situation. Um and then but I but I will also say that um I had this kind of level of defensiveness about the the setting, which I write about in the book. Um, about the fact that it was someone else's birthday and someone else had sent the invitation and made the guest list. And this wasn't, these weren't my people, air quotes, because I hadn't curated this group of people. I think that um, a lot of that kind of distancing behavior, like not really placing myself, um, 
you know, in a, in a seat of responsibility for an event that was happening in my home, literally in my home, uh, is something that was also happening in real time that night where I was like, perhaps less critical or, um, less tuned in to things like, um, you know, who, who is here? What is this experience like for Aminatu walking in here? I think, um, when I reflect on it, um, I, I really find a failure to take ownership over a situation in my own home. So yeah, that was my real time experience that night. And Aminatu, in your head, when you're deciding, I don't need to stay at this party very long. Like what is the internal monologue in your head? I mean, the internal monologue is there are a lot of white people here. This is not a, <laughs> you know, I'm like, I've seen this movie before. I do not need to be here. Um, yeah, you know, I think I I had a really, I was also surprised that um, that I was having feelings about that moment. Like I've known Anne for a long time. Um, you know, I know her other friends. I The woman who introduced us is black. I know that Anne has, um, you know, black people in her lives, uh, in her life. And it was a very, um, I like, I was surprised at how taken aback I was. And I think that I also understood really quickly that it was a discomfort that really came from a place of, um, you know, that was illustrative of the other problems that we were having. Like the, the, the thing that kept running through my mind was, do I know this person at all? Like I, I did not expect that this would be the case. And, um, yeah, so I, you know, I was like, I don't need to, to stay here because I, it, it does not feel good. It also does not feel safe. And frankly, is also very disappointing of, you know, um, people who live in, uh, Los Angeles, hmm. you would, uh, you, you would think that that is a, that is not a thing that you would encounter in Los Angeles with, um, friends that I know are very, um, justice minded and, so that was, you know, that was interesting. And I think that my next kind of tr train of thought was very much like, okay, like, Anne is obviously going to bring this up because um, she knows this is not okay. And we have had conversations about why environments like this are, you know, it's not okay to, to, to plan events where there are only white people or um, professional panels where only men are speaking. I, I really, I think you know, also really deferred responsibility there in the sense where I was like, well, great, I don't ever have to bring this up. This is something that will naturally occur in our conversations because we are um, we are people who are real about the state of the world. And that is not what happened. And when did it, when did you become aware of each other's versions of that night? How long did it take? I mean, Atu brought it up some months later when we were together. Months later. No, huh. for sure. I think it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely months um, later. When we were together in person. Um and and I do I do think that like this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about um the ways a long distance friendship can really come back to bite you because um I I don't know like um I don't know what what would have happened if we were in more regular contact or in more um in-person contact. But, um, but yeah, the facts, the facts are the facts, which is that Aminatu is the person who, who brought it up. Um, and, um, and honestly, like the, the initial part of that conversation, uh, ran parallel to what, um, you know, what I said moments ago about my experience of being at the party that night, which is to say I had a really defensive reaction of like, yeah, it wasn't my party. Uh, it wasn't my guest list. Like, you know, you know who my friends are, like a kind of um, instinctive response of distancing myself from, again, something happening literally in my home. Um, and, um, you know, and I don't, that that was not my last word on the situation, but I just I think it is important to 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 note that that is on that that was my first reaction. My first reaction was not like I am so sorry that this is an experience you had in my home, and I I would never want to cause you pain like this. Uh, and also, um, I'm really sorry that you had to be the one to think about it for all these months, and then be the one to broach it with me in person. You know, I mean, it's I think. Um, I want to be honest about the fact that that was not my first reaction in that situation. That is not the first thing that I said. 
I'm going to move to questions from from people because we've been getting some beforehand and they're coming in now as well. And I want to start with Jess in Minneapolis. And this, I think it's something that we haven't talked about yet, uh, which is about friendships and then what happens when there's a significant other who enters the picture. Um, In Jess's case, uh, Jess's friend has been dating someone for a few months and this new person who's in the picture, who's a romantic partner, isn't respectful of Jess or Jess's broader friend group, which means Jess is spending less time with her friend, and they're all in a quarantine pod together. So how should (laughs) Jess navigate this situation and potentially bring it up with her friend that that this new partner, this new romantic partner, isn't respectful? Oh, man. In a pod. I know. I know. In in the middle of a pandemic, this is whew, this is this is stretch this is stretching all of us. Um you know, I mean, pandemic aside <laughs> or pandemic adding adding to the dread and to the angst, I think that that is um I I I feel a lot of sympathy and you know, and and pain for for this question because that is a it is such a recognizable scenario. It is um and it really is a, a very common threat to a lot of, of friendships. I think that, you know, I, um, and it's also something that I have experienced myself, you know, as the, as, uh, as the other friend. And so I think that thinking, really thinking through, like, what is the outcome that you want here? Because, you know, the partner is not going anywhere and you are not going anywhere. And, um, and knowing that that is the baseline that we are operating within is, I think, what should really guide the rest of this conversation. And I think that, you know, the, the pandemic weirdly is an opening here because I think that, that really reassuring your friend and affirming to them that you love them and you are trying to find a way for all of you to get along in this moment that is really hard and that it is not something that you can unilaterally make the rules for or, you know, state your desires for, I think, um, I think that that is the way forward because, um, you know, people share custody of a lot of people. It's, uh, if it's not a partner, it's other friends, it's family, it's work. And, um, you know, like in our, in our friend group, Anne and I always joke that our other big friends are, we treat them like in-laws. We're like, a lot of respect and you check in on the big things about their lives, but it's totally okay if you're not involved day to day. But I think that, um, you know, being generous in stating that you do not feel comfortable and that you want to find a way to, to find a solution for how you can all get along is probably the first, is the first thing to do here. And, you know, and I think that I, I want to believe that if you are generous and you are, um, you are um, clear about the fact that you, you know, that this is uncomfortable for you as well, that people will meet you there, you know? And and I think that you can take the next step, like, depending on how that, how well that is received. A question from Jacqueline, who is 42 and lives in Boston. She moved there from New York City a few months before the shelter-in-place started, and she's wondering how to start making friends in this new world. Do you have any suggestions if you've recently relocated, uh, given the weirdness of our time right now? How do you make friends? Uh, Jacqueline, moving in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I I think it is really hard. I honestly, like, I just want to, I have a lot of compassion um, for this person. Uh I will say that some of the most successful friendships that I have made when I am new in a place have been as the result of a setup by another friend. Um, one of my closest friends here in Los Angeles is the college best friend of my one of my high school best friends. Um, and we had known about each other in that friend-in-law kind of way that Aminatu described for a long time. Um, but never really spent time together. And then when we ended up in the same city, I think she really extended me a lot of generosity because of this powerful connection that we had in common, this person in common. So I think that that's one question of um, who do you, who do you know who knows a person in, in Boston? Um, is there, is there a way to get the kind of bespoke friend introduction to someone? Um, because we are not doing the kinds of gathering that 
maybe we would otherwise advise someone in this position to do, you know, like join a club or, you know, go to go to more events or whatever it may be. So um, I think I would really mind the in-person connection and maybe in this case, like even a second degree connection. Um, I will say also that, you know, we've been talking about friendship a lot lately um, <laughs> and, and taking questions from people. And, and a lot of people are looking to make new friends in a pandemic. You know, I really do think that's true. Um, and so I just, I, I want this person to not feel like um, it's asking too much or that no one else is looking for a new connection right now. Because I think um, it's pretty clear to me that a lot of people are like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm, this is this is a good opportunity to get to know someone. It's a good question from Stephanie on YouTube about um, the research that you did for the book. And she was wondering about the way friendship is expressed or honored in other cultures, um, specifically about the priority placed on partners or kids as primary relationships here in the U.S. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Do you, are there other places that have it figured out better about how to take care of friends? You know, we did not do um, any kind of cross-cultural um, friendship studies specifically. I think that um, predominantly because we were writing about this U.S. context, but also because within the American context, we were having a really hard time finding um, any um, any research with a lot of teeth, actually. You know, I think that... We, we saw a lot of, um, you know, the, the duck-duck-goose approach of research where just like 17 people <laughs> in, a, in a boarding school in Hong Kong. Uh, <laughs> um, and frankly, we're, we were, that, was, that was probably the most demoralizing part of this process was realizing that, oh yeah, maybe um, there is no social support for friendship and friendship as an institution is not taken seriously because we are not um, devoting resources to, to studying it. Um, so I, we do not have anything um, smart or good to say about other cultures. We do, however, write um, in the book about, um, you know, the concept of chosen family. Um, that is, um, you know, frankly, like uh, an idea that we have learned from our queer friends um, who within their own communities have had to create models for family because, um, you know, they were locked out of uh, traditional modes of making family. And, um, and the queer scholarship on how to take care of each other and how to acknowledge each other and how, you know, how to be in the world is something that has left a really profound impression and to this question, I think I think this question is really smart because the you know the thing that Anne and I are trying to figure out in our own lives, which is the thing that I think a lot of adults are trying to figure out, is how do you organize your world um, in a way that is reflective of the society you want to live in? You know, and we we recognize that you know in in our very American context, uh, there is a lot of pressure um, you know for romantic partnerships to be successful. There is an expectation that your um, biological family um, of origin is the the only family that you're going to have and the people that you will honor. And we we find that that is not true for people, you know, across the border. And so what does life look like if you let adults make decisions about being adults, you know, and say, oh, actually, my next of kin is not the person that I am. Um, my next of kin is my friend. Or if you said... I um I am not going to put pressure on my marriage to be everything, you know, everything to to me right now because I get my needs met, um, my emotional needs met in another way. So I am also curious about how people are doing friendship around the world. And I'm sure that, you know, there's a community in Sweden where they figured it all out <laughs> and I cannot wait to read about it. Well, one of the researchers you do quote in the book uh, talk, talks about these three typologies of friendships that I found really um just like inspiring or it called upon me to try to do better. Uh, it talked about friendships being commemorative, which is you share a history, but not much in the present. Dormant friendships where you once had a connection, but you're less uh, connected now, but have a sense that you could go back and pick up where, where you left off. And then active friendships. Um, and I, as a, as a mom of two young kids, like thought about the sort of just like, so many dormant friendships in my life uh, and felt a real sadness and felt real envy reading your book um, and, and about the friendship that you all have really taken care of and grown. 
um, between you. And and Amy on YouTube asks a question about this kind of friendship. Um, do you have any tips for reconciling with friends that you fell out with or have lost touch with? Um, specifically, in her case, disagreement and values or life priorities. Like, do you have thoughts about how to bring each other back close when you have let space get there mm-hmm. in between you? I really think that it is circumstantial in the sense that um, sometimes the values divide um, can be too much to repair. Um, that feels pretty fundamental to maybe how people see the world and how they're organizing their lives. But something like priorities, when I hear that, I'm like, priorities shift, you know, as we go through different life phases. Um, and and also people change. You know, if there's one thing that like we have learned through our own process is that Um, Not only were we different people to begin with, different from each other, um, we are really different people now than we were 10 years ago. And I think um, if this person has been out of touch um, with her friend or with their friend, they might not know um, how that person has changed and how an overture might be received. And um, the thought that I often have is just like, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, the worst thing that could happen is this person maybe... um, says something hurtful or that they left the friendship intentionally and they really did want it to fade away. Like that, that might be the hardest thing to hear. But, um, but beyond that, like, I think there's a lot more to gain than there is to lose by making a really heartfelt overture about, um, what you miss about having this person in your life. And, um, I, uh, yeah. And I will just say that, um, you know, we've both been thinking a lot too about friendships in our lives that have ended, um, you know, you, you can't talk about friendship every day (laughs) without (laughs) thinking about that. And, um, you know, and, and it's also true that when a friendship ends, that person is kind of frozen in amber in the past. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you think of them as forever, the person who you fell out with way back when. And, um, and they may have changed a lot too. There may be a new opening there for both of you. So I think that's part of the oddness of friendships. Like when you do grow apart, you don't have the the sort of line of a breakup that you do in romantic relationships? Like, is there, do you think there ought to be a, a more sort of formal way of ending friendships that, um, where you're not ready to invest the the same level of energy in anymore? Oh, man, this, um, I feel this one in my bones so much because, you know, Anne is right. We, we think a lot about friendships that have ended and, you know, speaking just for myself, that, the process of writing this book with Anne really brought into focus a lot of um, like very unhealthy ways that I have ended friendships, whether, you know, like they have been really abrupt with no, um, you know, no explanation or it's been the more weaselly. Um, I'm not exactly going to tell you what, what was wrong, but I'm completely going to fade away from you. And it's something that I frankly have a lot of shame about and I'm really working through you know, how to reconnect with a lot of these people. I think, um, you know, I, I think that some breakups are always, um, you know, it was, uh, it was the correct thing that, um, you are no longer friends with that person. But I think that for myself, at least, I wish that I had handled it differently. And I wish that like in a romantic, um, breakup, when you tell someone, you know, you kind of have the postmortem of the relationship and you also tell them your intentions of no longer seeing them. I, um, I wish that, um, I wish for myself that that was something that I had done and that also had been done to me because I think that in the, you know, in, in the nebulousness of the friendship bond, it is, it's so hard to tell sometimes and so many things go unsaid and, and again, because there is not really a, you know, a societal script for how you end a relationship, people are really left, you know, drifting in the wind, like wondering what they have done or what they could have done differently. And, you know, and um, and not that that doesn't happen in, um, you know, in a romantic context, but I think that we definitely have more, we have more of a, a norm there for what you are supposed to do and how that conversation is supposed to go. So I, um, you know... Speaking from a place where I am, I am analyzing my own behavior. That is something that is definitely top of mind. And you know, you, Anna, you mentioned the three kind of buckets of friendship: the active, dormant, and commemorative. And you know, commemorative are ones that no one expects to return to. You're like, that was great for me in the past, or you really helped me become who I am. But 
but we've moved on. Um, whereas dormant is like, okay, you know, we're just going to turn the heat back on under this one and, you know, warm it up when we both have time. And one thing that is a result of not having these conversations directly is that one person can be thinking it's dormant. Like we're going to both come back to this when, when our kids are older or when we're through this tough period of work or when we live in the same city again or whatever. And the other person might have written it off as commemorative. And I think, um, you know, in, it, it's really helpful if you have an intention there for the future to state it positively, you know? I mean, and I think sometimes that's easier advice. It's easier advice for me to follow through on than definitively telling someone it's over. Like, um, that's something I very much struggle with and have struggled with. But the expressing of intention, like, hey, I know we haven't been in touch, you know, and yet you're someone I see in my future. Um, that kind of positive forward-looking one feels maybe a little easier to achieve to get some clarity. And, and as we talk about life phases, Tracy emailed a question just with the question. It might be the same answer you gave before, Anne, but I'm curious, do you have thoughts about how you make friends in your 50s when you're at a different life phase than in your 20s or 30s? <laughs> I mean, neither of us are 50. Just want to say that for people listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, but you know, some of um, some of the the best friendships that I have made in my life, especially recently, are people who are much older than me. And I feel I feel incredibly lucky that, um, you know, people who have just lived more life than me um, want to choose me to be in their lives. And, and I really just want to make a plug for intergenerational friendship because, my God, it is... It's so important. It's so, it's so, so, so important. And it's so nurturing. And it's so... It's so great, you know, and and in the and I think that in the same way that we talked about the the enriching experience of having a say a not white friend in your life if you're a white person, I think that for young people, this is really a place where I would challenge them to be more open to having um frankly to having older people in your life because um society is very cruel to people as they get older, particularly women and um and it's it's just not fair. Um, but back to this question, you know, I would say that, um, you know, new friend energy is new friend energy, and you can <laughs> you can choose to you can choose to have that energy and put those vibes out. You know, I think that it that advice that Anne gave earlier is like holds true, and I think that you know um, part of our friendship story is that we are. We are very proactive people. We really think that, um, you know, if you want to make a friend, you have to go out and make a friend. There is no amount of <laughs> sitting at home on the couch waiting for people to reach out to you that will work. And I think that in this scenario, I would really encourage this person to be really intentional about the fact that they do want to make friends. You know, I think that being open about it and saying it and seeking people out and, um, you know, and, and telling people when you want to hang out with them that it is, in fact... Um, you know, you are courting them to be a friend is something that is really important here. We've been talking for over an hour and I could talk to you for many, many more hours. Like <laughs> I just, it's like a different kind of oxygen to talk about these relationships in our lives that we don't talk about in public spaces a lot and their, their importance. Um, and I want to end just by asking you all, you, part of the, the, the last few pages of your book you talk about end of life and friendships as part of your argument for why it's worth investing this energy and making the choice to pick up the phone or make those dinner plans and keep to them. And and what did you find out about how people who are at the end of their lives and facing death talk about friendship? Oh, there's an anecdote that we include in this chapter um, from an Australian nurse named Bronnie Ware who recorded um, the most common things she hears from people who are in the last few days or hours of their life. And one thing that she hears over and over and over is a regret at letting truly golden friendships um, fade away. And, um, and she writes that these are not things that you can snap your fingers and have back in those last moments of your life. You know, it really... Um, the the kind of deathbed reconciliation or something is is not going to happen. It's really, um, you know, you have to kind of continually invest, um, you know, not let them go dormant <laughs> if you want if you want that experience at the end. And um, 
that was a really powerful thing, I think, for both of us to read because, um, you know, there is, there are a lot of, um, narratives around finding romantic love and how like you know I don't want to die alone you know, to be to be really rom-com eye roll about it um but the the truth is that like you know the investing in friends is like just as valid a long-term choice and um it's difficult for me to imagine my life now um even at age 38 without the insights and reflections that I've gained through my friendships. And one thing that I get really excited about is thinking about, oh my gosh, the, the, the returns on like more decades of this, like that feels so exciting to me, you know, like what am I going to learn from my friendship with Aminatu in the next like 40 years? Like stay tuned. Um, so, so I feel, you know, it doesn't have to be a kind of sad alternative to loneliness kind of thing. I think for me, um, friendship really represents, um, a pursuit of like more freedom and expansive possibility. Ah, that's so, um, that's so good, Anne Friedman. This is why you are my friend. I, you know, I I just really want to echo everything that Anne said. I, you know, the process of writing this book and also being in this, being in this moment, literally in a pandemic, I think um, you you kind of you start to think about like all of the things that are important to you. And and friendship really is at the center of that for me. You know, I think that um I really want to believe in the expansive possibility of a of a society that elevates friendship, you know, and really, really um, lets people express love in a way that is not, um, you know, that is not tied to a romantic context or that is not just reduced to, um, you know, a biological family bond. And and that world seems really exciting to me. It seems really, really, really exciting to know that. Um, you know the the relationship that Anne and I have is not unique at all. In fact, uh, it is the most mundane. It is the most mundane kind of of uh, of big friendship that anyone can have. And it was so hopeful to us to hear other people say this. And and I am really excited about the prospect of hearing more of these stories because Anna, as you say, there are stories that we tell in private. And I think that it it is really important and transformative for us to tell these stories in public because so many of our lives have been changed by, by friendship. And, you know, we are, we are people who are really dedicated to, to self-knowledge and to, to learning more about ourselves. We want to be whole humans. We want to be, um, you know, humans who experience healing and friendship really is at the center of all of that. And, I I am really, really, really excited to talk to more people about how they are doing friendship and how um, friendship has changed their lives for the better. That's Aminatou So and Anne Friedman. Their new book is called Big Friendship. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Thank you to the team at The Green Space who made this live conversation possible. Sachi Ezra, Cam Tompkins, Ricardo Fernandez, David McLean, and Jennifer Sindro. Afi Yellowduke produced this episode. The rest of the Death, Sex, and Money team is Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delure and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you could subscribe to our newsletter for behind-the-scenes updates from the team, weekly podcast recommendations, and stories from other listeners. That's at DeathSexMoney.org slash newsletter. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 